You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We've got a good block of time here, and we're going to need it. Danielle DiMartino Booth joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers a uh, studio, you, uh, you know her, you know her work, CEO and chief strategist at QI Research. Uh, Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, boy, a lot of economic data coming out over the last several days. I don't know, the economy seems pretty darn strong to me. I'm not sure if the recession talk is off the table. What does our Federal Reserve do, looking at some of the eco data we've seen over the last several days? Well, you have to bear in mind, I- I'm of the mind that the Federal Reserve wants a reason to keep raising rates. Okay. And we follow one metric at QI Research the most closely because it's, the, it, it's got the least noise in it. So not statistically, not, 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 not seasonally adjusted, continuing claims. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to make this really simple. Last September, Please. there were zero states in the United States of America that had rising year-over-year continuing claimants. So the number of individuals in zero states in terms of rising beneficiaries. Okay. Last September. 46 states, as of this morning's data, have rising continuing claimants. That's 94% of the population. Wow. Okay. So what's that tell you? That, and, and it's been gradual, by the way. This is not like from September and a light flipped on in July. It's okay. been a very gradual move. And it tells me that even though the data is not fast moving, that seasonality is really giving a lot of trouble to a lot of these other data sets. And it just tells you that there's been a steady, a steady degradation in the U.S. economy viewed through the purest prism of people continuing to claim jobless benefits. Not initial. They're not, they're not applying. They're, they're collecting. What is ADP? I don't know what to do with ADP uh, data. You know, you know what you do with ADP? I'll tell you what. You, you, okay. With ADP, you go, look, we've had about 400 and... Uh, We've, we've had about uh, 348,000 last six months NFP, non-farm payrolls. Yep. ADP's 363 last six months. Okay, fine. It's caught up. Okay. Moving on. I mean, some of the, some of the aberrations in the data are bizarre. Right. Okay. I mean, leisure and hospital. Mining, did, did we discover copper in America? Because <laughs> <laughs> that was a huge pop in mining. So, and, and, and we've seen the Baylor, we, 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 we've seen the Baker Riggs 
uh, Hughes rig count. I can't speak this morning. Yep. <laughs> I've had too much coffee. We, we've seen rig counts come down. Okay. So there's no reason to think that there's a whole bunch of shale formation that's pulling people into the energy patch. So you think the economy is weaker than some of the underlying, some of the headline data is showing? I think the economy is weaker. If you look on a granular so wouldn't the, basis. So wouldn't, wouldn't that give the Fed some reason to just to pause if not? I don't think the Fed wants to pause. Okay. Okay. I think the Fed is looking for reasons to keep going. Okay. I think if you if you pay attention to how they will not discuss the balance sheet, we, we're not talking about quantitative <laughs> tightening. It's like Voldemort. They won't talk about it. But they can't have quantitative tightening. They can't continue to shrink the balance sheet if a discussion is even entered into about easing where rates are. They have to keep rates high to keep shrinking the balance sheet. So we're getting all of this labor data ahead of tomorrow's mm -hmm. important jobs report. Yep. And it's interesting, I'm looking at EcoGo and the terminal, and it looks like the unemployment rate is actually gonna tick down from 3.7% through 3.6% based on analysts that we're pulling mm -hmm. in the terminal. You look at the, when it comes to non-farm payrolls, about 225,000. What is your take on what we could see tomorrow and obviously how that could potentially relate to how U.S. stocks are moving on the back of this type of data that clearly, not even just the stock market, but looking what's happening with a two-year? And, and the two-year really is where it is all at at this point, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I can't tell you what NFP is going to do tomorrow. I, I, I had a friend of mine, Peter Shear, he's a good friend of, of, of Bloomberg's, you know, he made the comment. Yep. What are the statistically speaking? What are the odds that 14 months in a row all the economists miss the estimate? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what are the odds? I mean, the, the, the BLS will tell you that 42% of the jobs created in the last 42 months are against a backdrop of the, the, the fastest bankruptcy cycle since 2009. So, how do we have a birth death adjustment that adds 42% net net of all non farm payroll jobs? 42% is not a small number over the last 12 months in the aggregate assuming that this is all births, when you can pull up BCY Go on the terminal oh. and see the biggest number since 2009. So when you see the two-year at a 16-year high, mm -hmm. what do you think the bond market is telling us? It's telling you the Fed's gonna keep raising rates. Come what may. So we've got 90% uh, uh, priced in for the next meeting. Mm -hmm. They go again after that, you think, in September? I think it really becomes data dependent at that point, okay. unless there's going to be an investigation launched to the Bureau of Labor Statistics because they're already <laughs> questioning the inflation data. That's, our, that's a matter of public knowledge. So, I mean, barring that, you, you, you don't get to 46 states with rising continuing claimants without somebody starting to notice that there's a problem in the country. So what is the, I mean, what is your overall take of this economy, that there is in fact more weakness than the, I guess the headline data would show? But yet they're still going to rate, raise rates. It's the but yet. Remember, but yet. the employee retention credit, they advertise all yep, the time. Sure, we it did just that. pumped $28.8 billion into the U.S. economy in the month of June alone. It's been about $20 billion a month now for about 18 months. There's a massive form of, of, of COVID fiscal stimulus that continues to make its way into this economy. You see it in international travel. But as Torsten oh, Slock yeah. came out in his morning note this morning and said, the U.S. consumer is slowing. I think it pained him to say that. Mm -hmm. But if you look beyond the recipients of this employee retention credit, kind of the wealthiest, the highest income earners, you're seeing decided signs of slowing okay. in consumption. So then with this jobs report tomorrow, we have CPI on July 12th, mm -hmm. so next week. And then we'll have the Fed meeting on July 25th and 26th. So those are the last major data points before that. Is that enough for them to decide to potentially hike? 
Oh, I, I think it is. I, I really do. Um, again, he's focused on an inflation metric of his own design, the, the core CPI net of shelter. And it is a slow moving animal. We've gone back and looked at it historically prior to the pandemic. It was usually running at about two to 3%, but 2% was a rarity in mm -hmm. that isolated metric that Jay Powell has you know, conceived out of thin air. Uh, so in that he's looking at that, uh, I think that it's very conceivable. We're, you know, Omer Sharif is saying, you know, look for used car uh, prices to come down. You know, look for shelter to continue falling. Yep. Look, look for that next CPI print to be very bond market friendly. Unless Jay Powell's just going to look through it as you go 48 hours into blackout. Right. Before the next FOMC. What is, one of the re many reasons we like speaking to you is you rip out some data points that Quite frankly, I've never heard of. What are some of the data points that you and your team are kind of looking at here to get a, a sense that maybe aren't on EcoGo? So uh, we actually follow weekly data from Lightcast. Uh, they started tracking the data as of January 2020 to get a benchmark for which types of job openings there are in the nation. Okay. So jobs with minimal education required, I mean, they, they needed a new scale in order to track how many job openings there were for leisure, hospitality, okay. busboys, you name it. Yep. Um, that's recently, um, in the, in, through the uh, week of June 24th, come down to zero. Hmm. So there are effectively no job openings using a benchmark of January of 2020. I follow Trueflation very closely, T-R-U-flation. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually were able to get their full data set back to 2012. We ran a correlation analysis with the headline CPI last Friday, 97% since 2012, the correlation. Whereas Trueflation today, 2.2%. Okay. It's 30 million real-time prices. It's a daily inflation print, but a 97% correlation since 2012 with headline CPI tells you exactly where inflation is headed. So inflation's headed lower. Much lower. And isn't that good news for j -Pal? And that's what he wants to see, right? It's not good news for that j -Pal. That j -Pal wants to continue shrinking that balance sheet. Oh, man. And he wants a reason to continue <laughs> sh shrinking that balance sheet. So he's going to focus on job openings remaining high, even though work out of the Dallas Fed shows that 90% of those job openings are written for the pr specific purpose of poaching your closest competitor's employees so you don't have to spend the money training them. The other 10% actually reflect organic demand in the economy for new job openings. That's being reflected in Indeed.com as well. You're seeing Indeed.com job postings have come down tremendously okay. over the last 12 months. That's another big one that we follow. And again, it's a weekly data set and they're speaking to thousands and thousands of companies across the country. That's what you want. You want people who are speaking to people on the ground. And so even though we see the Fed's preferred gauge, PCE, moving in the right direction to you, that's still not enough when you're looking at what's happening with the strength on the labor side. And I'm going to quote Powell here, until the job is done. Yep. <laughs> until we get to 2%. And 2%, what is the 2% number? That is the core X. He's what? looking for core PCE to be 2%. That is okay. typically the gauge that you're talking about internally. Okay. All right. And we're not there yet. Oh. No, we got some room to no, go. We're excluding near. food and energy. Excu but, but he's going to keep training. They also that like to exclude housing. We, we get data out today at just after four o'clock. You're going to see a big chunk of quantitative tightening when that data hits late after the bell today. All right. Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much for joining us here. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she is the CEO and she is the chief strategist at QI Research. She's also did a stint at the uh, Dallas Federal Reserve. So you know about the Dallas Federal Reserve and what, how the, the central bankers uh, think across the board. So we always appreciate getting some of Danielle's thoughts here. You're listening to The Team. 
Kantar Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. To our next guest, Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Michael, thank you for joining us. Before we get more into what you're going to talk about as far as what you like about sectors in the S&P 500, I have to get your take as far as these massive moves in the bond market, especially with the two-year Treasury trading around its highest level in about 16 years. Well, I, I have to confess that I actually see the current level of the two-year as being remarkably attractive but I have been wrong in thinking that for a while now. So, um, you know, my general belief is that if the economy is slowing, the inflation problem is foreseen in the ISM services today is largely one that's in the rearview mirror. And the risk that we're actually creating through interest rate policy is that the higher level of interest rates themselves are actually now the key risk. This is exactly what we saw with the banking system earlier in the year. I think it's uh, working its way through the corporate sector where we're seeing a dramatic rise in bankruptcies. The odd thing for me is simply that it's not reflected in spreads. It doesn't seem to be reflected in any way in the Federal Reserve's calculations. And candidly, when we look at the jobs data today, um, certainly coming from the ADP, I I have to confess that I'm caught off sides in, in terms of that strength. I cannot reconcile the data if I look at the numbers for 2023 on a non-seasonally adjusted basis and compare them to the data from 2022, they're lower in every category. So oddly, we have this seasonal adjustment factor that again is raising its head and just making me really question whether the data that we're receiving is accurate. So I guess let's let's look at it, the, the economy from a different way. Earnings, corporate earnings. I'm looking at the uh, you know the earnings for the S and P 500 uh, consensus of, of uh, analysts about 222 dollars per share for this year. Um, how much risk, if any, do you see in that earnings number for corporate America? Well, I think that there's a remarkable disconnect between the expectations data and the actual data that we're experiencing in the gap form, right? So the generally accepted accounting principles earnings for the S and P are down to 179. That's off of a level of about 209 from last year, and it shows no dynamic that would suggest that the rebound that analysts are forecasting is in play. Much of what I would argue we're seeing is basically a um, an attempt to ignore the one-time costs associated with either unemployment um, or layoffs. And in many ways, again, it just feels like the data is being created to match a narrative of rising prices or the reality of rising prices in stock markets versus what we're actually seeing empirically in the economy. Michael, the S&P 500 is trading around its lowest level in about a week. Something I was curious about when we're looking at some of this stronger than expected labor data, is this potentially a reason for certain stock investors to sell after what was a very strong first half? Well, I I think that there is very much a focus correctly on what the Fed is going to do. And so we're clearly seeing, as you led into the discussion here, indications that um, interest rates are moving higher, that Lori Logan came out today and said she expects additional interest rates going forward. I, I think broadly speaking, that that is really what's powering the market as of this immediate sell off as compared to um, taking gains or anything else. We've seen a fairly significant amount of disconnect between the S&P 500, which is obviously market cap weighted and dominated by the large market cap names, 
and what we've seen in, say, the Russell 2000, which is not up nearly as much on a year-to-date basis, and in fact, the equal-weighted Russell 2000 is barely up for the year. So this has been an environment in which the vast majority of stocks have been relatively weak, even as a few mega-cap names, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, et cetera, have been very strong. In my view, that that, that would represent mostly a... a um, you know, flow story, effectively money going into the AI and technology space, driving performance as compared to any indication of real economics at play. Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a, a distinct tone of cautiousness uh, in your view of the markets and the economy. Where, How are you allocating your portfolio these days? Stocks, bonds, what sectors, that type of thing? Yeah, no, as, as I indicated, I absolutely have been caught in the wrong positioning on this last move. I genuinely look at the two-year bond at, you know, five plus right now and say, I can't believe that we're being given this opportunity in an environment in which it seems very clear that at least the, the economy has slowed dramatically. Um, whether it continues to slow is really the question. And it, I see few opportunities for continued growth and expansion. Today's ADP is obviously a wrinkle in that, but it, you know, again, I just think the data that we received from ADP today was wrong. Can't fully explain it, but that's what it appears to be, where the non-seasonally adjusted data is showing a significant divergence from the seasonally adjusted data. That's true for the claims data, that's true for the unemployment data, that's true for the ADP data. Something that struck me just looking at the industries within the S&P 500, more of those cyclically related corners of the market are leading declines when you're looking at energy, also materials, technology down a little bit under 1%, also the NASDAQ 100 down more than 1%. But when you think about the correlation between bonds and what's happening when it comes to technology stocks in particular or growth shares, would you expect them to be more pressured given what we're seeing in the bond market? So I'm not a huge believer in this idea that growth stocks or large cap growth stocks in particular have a quote unquote high duration. In other words, a high degree of sensitivity to interest rates. I think we've obviously seen that you know with the strength in the apples and the microsofts on a year-to-day basis where despite the fact that we have much higher interest rates they continue to push higher um if anything i think that there's a an explanation that has much more to do with kind of portfolio allocation dynamics than any sort of fundamentals around interest rates and valuation um again i you know i would just lean towards the direction that what we're worried about at this point is the Fed continuing to be overly aggressive with the hikes that are already in the system, not in any way reflected in the underlying data that we're receiving yet? As that moves forward, if the Fed continues to hike or pauses in its response, that creates conditions under which a slowdown could actually end up being much more severe than is currently being priced in or versus expectation. And that unfortunately continues to be my rising base case that the Fed is simply behind the curve in the opposite direction. Again, the ISM prices paid data would suggest that the inflation story is well behind us. We see this in Europe where the CPI, the producer price index, has turned negative. We're just seeing data that, that suggests that the, the inflation story is no longer the operative dynamic. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's right, though. All right. So real quick there, Mike, what do you think we're going to hear from our Federal Reserve at the next meeting and maybe even the meeting after that? 
Well, I think it's hard to argue with the market, right? So when the market suggests that they are more than 85% probability of going, historically it's been about 70%. It's been very rare for the Fed not to take advantage of that. I would expect that they'll ultimately hike and that they'll indicate, as the data suggests certainly today, that the economy continues to represent strength. I don't really think that they're focused on the inflation story as much as they are focused on or the direction of inflation story, which is clearly downwards, as much as they are focused on this idea of we've got to get back to 2%. Right. That is going to be the, the real question is, you know, do they continue to hike until we get to 2%, which right. suggests that they're going to be way behind the curve in the opposite direction. All right, Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Thank you so much for joining us and getting your purview here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's get right to our next guest, Mona Mahajan, Senior Investment Strategist at Edward Jones. Mona, crazy, crazy day in the markets here. I'd love to get your sense of kind of what the economic data is telling you and what do you think it's telling the Federal Reserve? Yeah, great points there. And look, I think uh, there was some really market moving data this morning that we think highlighted a few trends. Uh, first of all, the services part of the economy continues to remain remarkably resilient. Uh, we saw that not only with the ADP jobs report where we were up 497,000 jobs uh, when we expected just 225,000, but really what drove that was the services sectors, including areas like leisure and hospitality. We also got the ISM services data this morning, which continued to show an upward trend rather than you know, what many had expected to be a little bit more moderation. Now, on the positive side, uh, both the ADP and the ISM services data did show some cooling in inflation. ADP data wage gains came in at 6.4%, still elevated, um, but following a trend lower over the last several months. And similarly, the ISM prices paid component came in below expectations. And so um, hopefully the, the message uh, is that yes, the economy has remained resilient, but the inflation data continues to show signs of moderation. Now, of course, from a Fed perspective, um, I think this gives them another green light to uh, move forward in July at least. And we heard a little bit of dissent and, and debate um, when we got the minutes yesterday. I think this uh, certainly kind of adds to the case that uh, they could do one, perhaps two more rate hikes ahead. Uh, but they are closer to a pause than they are, they have been in recent history. Now, I think the other big part of the markets today, of course, has been what's happening with yields and the upward move in yields close to now highs for the year uh, does put some downward pressure on equity markets, particularly those higher valuation parts of the market as well. And we've heard from Fed Chair Powell, as well as other members of the central bank, and you were referring to this as far as at least two more rate increases this year. If we do end up seeing another one at the end of this month, what would need to happen with the data between now and then when we have the Federal Reserve's following meeting in September after the July meeting for them to end up maybe potentially having two consecutive rate increases? Yeah, it's a good point. And look, we do get a lot of data between now and September. And of course, this month alone, we'll get an additional set of CPI and PPI data next week. Uh, we'll, of course, start earnings season towards the end of July, and we'll have that July rate hike um, or rate decision uh, at the end of July. Um, so the, the Fed and the markets will have to digest quite a bit. 
Um, our view is that over time, we will continue to see inflation moderate. And so perhaps the one rate hike that the markets are pricing in could be a final rate hike for the Fed. Um, but if the economy uh, does continue at this pace, especially in the services sectors, uh, that could keep services inflation elevated. Keep in mind, the Fed has broken down inflation into three core buckets, which are uh, goods inflation, which have shown signs of rolling over, housing shelter inflation, which we do think um, over time will see cooling, that you know there's a lag there and, and real-time data is showing some cooling and we think that shows up over time. But it's really that third bucket, which they categorize as non-housing, uh, services inflation that has yet to show meaningful signs of moderation. So they'll be watching that closely. And I think if that continues to show signs at least of, of uh, stabilizing, moving lower, we'll have one rate hike ahead of us. If not, that the second one is on the table. So then as a strategist, what is your outlook for the second half of the year after we had such a strong first six months? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it was a stellar first half of the year with the S&P up over 14%. Um, you know, keep in mind, there have been some positives and, and reasons for optimism. The economic data is coming out ahead of expectations. Inflation, as we noted, is showing signs of moderation. And the Fed may be towards the end of its rate hiking cycle. Uh, but we'd be cautious to extrapolate that strong move higher in the first half to a straight line up in the second half of the year. Now, history does tell us when you are up over 10% in the first half, it bodes well for the second half. Um, in our view, we do think bouts of volatility may be likely, especially if the economy starts to show signs of cooling. Um, but will we get another uh, bear market or meaningful downturn? That we see as unlikely at this point. And in fact, um, we think those bouts of volatility could be used as opportunities, especially as investors look towards 2024, where you could get um, a meaningful uh, uh, bounce back in earnings better inflation and a Fed that not only is pausing, but they've told us they might start thinking about pivoting lower as well. Um, so really you want to start positioning for what we think could be a broader based market um, rally and participation towards the back half of the year uh, and, and both in equities and in bond markets as well. So do I think about small mid cap stocks, Mona? They've uh, historically lagged some of the, the bigger cap names, but if this thing's going to broaden out a little bit, maybe smaller mid caps. Yeah, it's a good point. And look, uh, small caps have meaningfully lagged in the first half of the year. So we certainly think there is room for catch up. Now, when we look historically, small caps tend to do well when the economy is reemerging from any sort of softness or, or downturn. They tend to lead on the way up. And so when we think about what we call a recovery basket, um, that could certainly include areas like small cap stocks, like cyclicals. And we're starting to see some strength in industrials, materials. Uh, perhaps even financials in that basket. International equities tend to do well in that environment. Those we think can complement what we're seeing right now because we do think the story behind AI and growth sectors does have a long-term secular tailwind behind it, although a lot of it has been you know, priced very quickly up front as well. So we think a complement of uh, both the growth and the more cyclical parts of the market will work better as we head towards 2024. We only have about 45 seconds left. What's the top question that you hear from clients? Yeah, you know, I think it's still the big one around recession. We tend to hear a lot more, especially now that the Fed is, you know, continuing to raise rates. Um, and we do think that uh, what, what we're seeing now is a potential for a cooling in the economy, but perhaps not your typical two back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP growth. We think a softness to below trend growth is likely, though, um, sometime in the second half of the year. 
All right, Mona, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate thank getting you. some of your time. Mona Mahajan, she's a senior investment strategist at Edward Jones. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Threads is a thing. I'm there for what it's worth. Start a campaign. Um, let's do a little tech roundtable here. Let's bring in Mandeep Singh. He covers the tech for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. And Ed Ludlow, after a, a very difficult uh, Zoom situation this morning, he is our technology guy uh, out in San Francisco. He joins us as well. So we got it all covered for you. Um, Mandeep, let's start with you here in our studio here. What is Meta looking to do here? Is this going to be a business for them? Is this a real competitor for Twitter? Or just give us the business case. The business case is they want to add that dimension of real-time public conversations that are going on related to politics, related to breaking news, and uh, that weren't happening on Instagram. Probably they were happening on Core Blue app, but they've been losing engagement. So it's an engagement play for them to keep users on their family of apps. And they have done a great job of adding Reels content this is another dimension and look they don't need to focus on monetization right now if they're able to get that engagement in terms of getting the core creators from twitter to threads that'll be a big win for them and is this likely to be a big player here or what kind of hurdles are ahead for it well, the hurdles is, you know, the interest graph and the followers that uh, Twitter has over the course of their last 15, 20 years. That, you know, people have accumulated their uh, followers and they like to see a certain curated feed when it comes to uh, the home screen. Well, right now when you go to Threads, they have an AI generated feed and there are a lot of brands and I've tried to you know, yep. mute a lot of them. I mean, that's not the experience you want to have. And that's where scale and network effects is what drives social media engagement. And early movers have always had an advantage. What TikTok did was great in terms of leveraging AI to come up with uh, you know, great recommendations. That is the playbook here for mm -hmm. Meta is to use their user graph as well as AI to drive the curated content feed. All right, Ed, when I think of cutting edge technology, I think of Ed Ludlow. Uh, I think of Silicon <laughs> Valley. Kind. I guess where Ed Ludlow is, Silicon Valley out there in San Francisco. Ed, what's the buzz, if anything, out there in the Valley about what the, our good friends at Facebook are trying to do here? Yeah, the adoption's been really interesting to track. I was uh, signed up to Threads as user number 132,009. Wow. Um, so I made it in, Ooh, let me see in the initial batch. I mean, it's Bloomberg's tech editor, Sarah Fry, was like number 2,000. Well, she's um, a you know, overnight, she's a player, and overnight yeah. we hit the 10 million mark. And my understanding is that we're closer now to 30 million uh, users on the platform. But I, I find Mandeep's commentary really interesting. There are clearly UX differences, right? between what you, you, you get on the Threads platform, what you get on Twitter. It's very simplified right now. There are a few, there, you know, there's no sort of ad stream on it. Um, the biggest piece of news for me in the last 24 hours was a post by Zuckerberg basically suggesting that a billion users is possible. And, you know, to jump from 30 million to a billion, it, it, you know, I think I, I know a number of sell side analysts this morning kind of see difficulty in getting to that scale. But think about it this way. Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, if Meta onboarded just one out of every 10 users on its existing platforms, it would already eclipse what Twitter's monthly or, or installed active user base is. So it, you can kind of see them eclipsing Twitter a billion, harder to see. 
Mandeep, something I'm curious about is, especially when you think of Meta and the cost-cutting efforts that it has clearly gone through, and its stock's up more than 200% since early November, how much could this potentially either support that stock price, or is it just too early to be seen when you're looking at sell-side? Well, so in terms of incremental revenue, I think, uh, look, this is not going to move the stock. Uh, Twitter had revenue of, you know, around uh, $6 billion when before they went private. And even if they are losing revenue and, you know, uh, Meta can uh, layer ads over time, you're, you're not buying the stock here with the hope that, you know, this product is going to generate uh, $2, 3000000000 billion in incremental revenue. But what it can do is drive that engagement because ultimately, if you go to Twitter right now, their average time spent per user is around 27 to 30 minutes every day for the daily active users. If they can take a share of that, that'll be huge. Again, the cumulative effect of social media when you think about you know, Meta is what people spend their time on the Core Blue app, the Instagram, and WhatsApp. You add another dimension to it, it helps with their AI, it helps with the overall advertisers, and that is what Meta is after here. All right, so Ed, what's the feeling uh, in the Valley about Elon Musk? What's his response going to be? What's the future of Twitter? How do you think this plays out? You know, uh, he Oh, by the way, I just just did my first post on threads telling people to go to YouTube to watch our our streaming. So I am multimedia. Okay, I will... Asking, I will repost. Thank you. I will repost that. Just give me a second. Okay. I'm on air with you right now. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, Elon's tweeted. He he said it is inf- infinitely preferable to be attacked by strangers on Twitter than indulge in the false happiness of hide the pain Instagram. And I think his point is that historically, Instagram is a photo-based app where you give the perception that your life is very different to reality, uh, I guess, from a happiness perspective. Uh, Linda Yaccarino, who is the new Twitter CEO, uh, has tweeted in the last 30 minutes. um, I wouldn't call it cryptic, but I would say that she really emphasizes what she feels is good about Twitter. She doesn't specifically name or call out threads. Um, But, you know, they're essentially the same thing. I'm a big meme guy, and you guys will have seen that Zuckerberg (laughs) tweeted... He did his first tweet in, in since 2012, 11 years, and it's the classic Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, yep. the reference to episode 19B of the 1967 animated series called Double Identity. Uh, they're the same platform, and I, you know, Mandy may disagree with me, but to all intents and purposes, they're the same, and that's probably uh, ahead of the cage match upset Mr. Mr. Musk. So, Ed, do you think that it's likely that Meta would be able to take a ch- big chunk of users when it comes to Twitter. Obviously, as you know, there's been problems that Elon has got, had to go through when it comes to the Twitter platform over the past year. Uh, thank goodness. I thought you were going to ask, is it likely that Musk and Zuckerberg actually <laughs> fight each other in a cage? Um, you know, uh, I, I, the, I think that what I notice anecdotally, I was on it for hours yesterday. It was a bit cringe, fair. I sent many threads. I really engaged with people. A lot of what people were talking about is that they wanted the tone of... of threads to be a pleasant place a nice place and many of them explicitly referenced the idea that they felt that twitter was not that way and so you know this is also playing out on twitter in parallel by the way the irony lots of people on twitter are talking about you're only going to threads as a vote against musk himself because you don't like him or his personality i don't it's how can any of us quantify what kind of of driver that will be for threads growth 
Um, yep. I, I think Mandy's points on 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 the future of the content on the on the Threads platform is the key bit. Hey, uh, let's just quick uh, change gears here. Uh, I know you spoke with the CEO of Rivian yesterday, Ed. What's the the key takeaway there? Yeah, I mean, two pieces of news. One, the quarter just gone is the first time the supply chain's normalized, and that was evidenced by their output. Um, they've made some tech fixes, and they're really starting to ramp now. And they they basically suggested that they will outperform their guidance, which would be interesting for investors. The other is that, that he told me they're trying to negotiate with Amazon to get out of the Amazon's exclusivity to buy the commercial vans from Rivian. So they say that those talks are going well, and that if they're successful, Rivian can start selling these electric delivery vans to other players. And, and as we know from this program, right, electrifying last mile delivery and the logistics space. Yep. Is, is a big market opportunity. So that was a really good takeaway. Check it out on Bloomberg.com. All right, great stuff. Ed Ludlow doing all the tech stuff for uh, Bloomberg Technology uh, and uh, Bloomberg News out there in San Francisco. Mandeep Singh, of course, Senior Technology Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. This is not necessarily tech, but you think about the tech-enabled boxes that end up on your front door every single day, and everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yes. Let's get a sense of like the business of the box business. Ryan Fox, he covers a corrugated market uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, so, Ryan, give us a sense of just kind of the stuff you covered. Give, me, just give us a sense of the industry that we all touch every day because it lands on our doorstep every day. Yeah, so the, the average American is going to call it a cardboard box. In the industry, we call it a corrugated box. Nice. Uh, anecdotally, like 95% of consumer goods ride in these boxes every day. So it's a very good indicator of what's going on in the economy. And, um, well, for the last year, we've seen a gradual decline in uh, box shipments uh, by producers of those boxes going to brands. Who are the main players in that space? Yeah, main players are going to be International Paper, uh, Westrock, Packaging Corp, uh, at least domestically here in the U.S. And you mentioned a slowdown. What was the catalyst to that? And what would that also mean for the trajectory of the economy? Yeah, so initially the slowdown, it was um, linked to these uh, the destocking narrative that's been going on for about the last year. Uh, most of the producers are saying their customers were, were pushing back uh that they had plenty of inventory um things weren't moving very quickly and some of it we saw in our data uh we saw that uh first quarter of 2022 lead times to get boxes went out uh, on average like four and five weeks and and this like was a huge departure from the norm the average lead time to get boxes is like three to five business days so to have something go out five weeks on average was just astronomical so when you think about a manufacturer and how they have to place their orders, this caused them to change their ordering. Um, some manufacturers during the pandemic had, had even gone to AI platforms that were uh, initiating automatic orders, even when they maybe didn't need them. And so at some point in the second quarter, they found themselves sitting on a lot of boxes that they didn't really need. And so producers saw that slowdown at the end of the second quarter going into uh, mid-year. And it really just slowed down from there. All right, but where are we now versus pre-pandemic? There's a lot more boxes out there, right? 
Uh, well, so after be, the dude. first quarter. I'm getting quarter. so many a, a day. All right, here, here's, here's my thing. I'm really good at breaking down the box. As soon as it comes in and we empty it, I'm breaking that box down. I'm the opposite. And I'm putting it in recycling. But really, it's got to be like way higher than pre-pandemic. No. Uh, really? So we're, we're actually, uh, after the first quarter, we were tracking with 2017 uh, as far as a, the volume of boxes that was going out. Um, our data indicates that through the second quarter, we're probably still on that pace, maybe even a little bit behind there. And it's not looking good going in the second half. Really? Wow, I never would have guessed that. Hey, let, going following up on that, because I'm a big recycler, and I think this is, uh, every time I break down a box and put it into recycling, I feel like I'm, I might be part of a scam here that it doesn't really work. <laughs> Tell us how the industry recycles boxes and stuff. Sure. Um, so first of all, about n over 90% of all of the recycled boxes that we get, and really all recycled commodities are gonna come from commercial and industrial sectors. So we're going to be thinking about Walmarts and Kroger's and Albertsons and, and big retailers like that. That's where most of the old, what we call old corrugated cartons or OCC, Ooh. that's where they come from. Curbside recycling is really not great. Um, it's about 7 to 8% of the total, and it represents about 2 million tons a year. Uh, Americans just aren't great at recycling. I'm really good at it. but I just So does international <laughs> paper take my box and then re redo it and that's, send it back out to me? That's what I was curious about because do they yeah. do that or also are there renewable basic materials that go into tissues uh, and other personal care products? Yeah, so OCC is a very uh, highly sought com uh, commodity. It's, it's uh, something that we export about 10 million tons a year of to other countries. But internally, uh, we consume about 25 million tons of old corrugated boxes every single year and we make new boxes out of them. Do I play these stocks? Do I, I mean, do I play it on, I mean, if I'm, if Mike, is my call on international paper just how much stuff is getting shipped around the world? Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know the right answer to that. <laughs> um, they're, they're traditionally uh, very, very stable companies. I mean, like I said, with 95% of the world's goods uh, that, consumers buy right in these boxes it's it's not like they're going to go away anytime soon yeah i mean geez i don't know just by my household it just seems like and you know tom Keene's always complaining about you know his doorman's what are you getting delivered he's a, he's a i don't know it's it's what do you, mean you don't know shampoo comes i mean you don't go to the store anymore you just click it's crazy so i, I don't know what's going well, on all right so we we did some math on it and the average american so if, if we were to take the volume of boxes that are made in average year divide it equally across everybody in the country uh, it's about 1,200 square feet per person per year. So it's <laughs> there you a lot. Go. I'm telling you. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Ryan Fox, he is thanks. the corrugated market analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, learned a lot there, but I, I don't know. I feel like I'm a good recycler, but, you know, Ryan's telling me that I'm just, it's not that big a deal. I think I'm hoarding I'm not, too many boxes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not moving the needle. Uh, but anyway, good stuff to catch up on that part of the biz. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Just met Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Well, last week, the Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan, which would have done away with as much as 
$20,000 per borrower. Um, and remember, House also uh, used the deal to raise the nation's debt ceiling to force borrowers to start paying back their loans in October, which is sooner than planned. So it's really tough on that uh, student loan forgiveness front. Let's get the latest on what that could mean economically. We welcome Claudia Som, founder of Som Consulting former senior economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors, so she knows about this policy stuff. Claudia, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your, your view of what kind of we saw from the Supreme Court and from Congress over the last couple of weeks as it relates to student debt and loan forgiveness and that type of thing. All right. Student loan forgiveness not making it through the Supreme Court, I don't think that should be a surprise to anyone when using executive powers to do $400 billion, uh, in spending. And yet it came, this was the second of two blows to uh, student borrowers this uh, that week. And you mentioned in the repayments start sooner. And for a lot of people, that is going to be a hardship, right? Like for, you know, the time that they've not been paying, that really eased up some space. It's coming back somewhat sooner than, I mean, administration said it was going to end too, but this is, this is earlier. So you're not getting this, the forgiveness to help smooth over the period of adjusting and you are getting your payments back sooner. So there's, you know, it was not a good couple of weeks for, um, for people with student loans. So with interest beginning to accrue in August and then those payments needing to be paid in October, how does that affect consumer spending and obviously the trajectory of the economy? Right, well, so it's clearly not good for the, um, for the economy. It is the case that, you know, the, the like people themselves who are in these situations have student loans, this deeply affects them. And yet the amount of money we're talking about, like the new payments, it's, it's really not the kind of magnitudes that really move the needle on GDP. Like in the sense that, oh, this would, or demand and make it like, oh, the Fed doesn't have to do as much because these uh, payments are uh, re expiring. So I think with this policy, the macro lens is less important than the people side of it. Isn't there already something along the lines of the public service loan forgiveness program? Can you tell us what that is, how that works, and how that might you know, help more people kind of deal with their student debt? Yeah, well, in my piece, I made the point, it's like, look, we're at a time where you've got a moment of reflection in how you go forward. President Biden said he's gonna try and keep figuring out how to do this. And it's also a time where they could take stock and say, hey, let's look at some other forgiveness programs. What didn't go well, what, what did go well. And the one example that I talk about are these, um, the debt forgiveness to people who work in a public service of any form. You can think of it as uh, teachers, doctors, um, firefighters, right? Any, like there's a pretty, there's a big group. And in fact, the group of, that would qualify for these loans is is big in terms of jobs of the economy it's it can almost be 25 percent of jobs that's not to say all those people are eligible and they have student loan debt but this is not a trivial um subset and one of the things that they have really struggled with the, that the biden did not is setting up a plan where people actually get the benefit at the end right they have a low take-up rate and they have a low success rate but it's a complicated program you got to pay back 10 years you know, so there are things there that, but the um, Biden's uh, forgiveness plan, the sign up for it was so fast and, and massive. So there's lessons to be learned there. And, and I mean, there are functional parts of that student loan setup. So that could also, I think there could be a real um, exchange of ideas that would be fruitful, both for the uh, forgiveness plan we actually have and the thinking about, well, what would be next 
for a student loan forgiveness. When it comes to the inflation front, there were concerns among macroeconomists about how the potential forgiveness could potentially spur a spark in inflation. What do you think this means when we're looking on the inflation front moving forward? We're, we're talking about basis points, right? Like, you know, yes, it will probably have an effect. Yes, it probably did allow spending to be a little higher as the, you know, you didn't have to do the payments. Uh, with the student loan debt, that's forgiveness, that's even less applicable because it's spread out over 10 years, like the whole process. And it's, um, yes, it will have an effect on demand, depending if it's there or it's taken away. And yet this is not, that's not the argument that should bring down a program like this is the inflationary effects. So, uh, Claudia, we have received a lot of economic data, including today, that suggests this economy perhaps is stronger than people think, that perhaps a recession is not right around the corner. I would love to get your recession outlook. Maybe talk talk to us about something called the SOM rule. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? No. Um, yeah. So, I, I've said several times last year when, when the recession talk was really getting going, and it's like, we need to, we need to hope that that labor market is as strong as the Fed keeps um, complaining that it is, right? Because if it's strong enough, it can buffer. And, you know, and slowly there are other things related to the pandemic, to, to the war in Ukraine, that as those work through, we could have inflation come down without the Fed doing more and more and more. And, but they're gonna keep pushing. So the labor market being strong is good for people with without a doubt, but it also can, just buffer us so that we slowly rebalance, we slowly get inflation back down, as opposed to, you know, bam, there's a recession and everything falls, including inflation. Uh, so I think it's the labor market is extremely important in that regard. And in terms of my um, recession outlook, I'm, I really am kind of in on the fence, right? For a long time, I was optimistic that we could have of soft landing, uh, in in some maybe softish uh, type landing, the when we had the disruptions in the banking sector, I think that caused more concern that, you know, we may re- really not pull this off because there's the Fed has put a lot of, into the system in terms of rate hikes, and they have bank failures putting more in, so it's kind. Of, but I agree with you as as the latest data on the economy comes in, it looks pretty good. And especially on the back of that ADP data that we got this morning, Jolts, and then ahead of tomorrow's jobs report, what's your view as far as the strength of the labor market and what it can mean for the Fed's decision later this month? So I think we're going to continue to see an expanding labor market. I mean, no, not every month, right? We we could have a big downside surprise this time because, you know, we've had upside. But I think, you know, when you look broad brush and you look like recent months, not just like today and you know tomorrow kind of picture i think we're seeing what the fed said it wanted to see which an economy slowing just like people not spending so much not you know people coming back to work so they don't have to pay the wages quite so much um so we'll know more we're going to know a lot more about the labor market by friday um but at the end of the day the fed is going to look at, at inflation right they get one more cpi before their meeting and that is going to take precedent over anything else that they're learning because inflation's too high. So, I mean, a lot of folks will say, we had Danielle DiMartino Booth from QI Research Consulting in here earlier today, and she was saying, she thinks the economy is much slower than the headline data is, is suggesting, some of the data set she looks at. Is your sense that the economy is in fact slowing down and is it material? 
Well, we've if you think about the increase in payrolls this year compared to last year, well, they have slowed down. They're still really good, you know, in terms of relative um, to before the pandemic. So, I mean, getting 200,000 jobs a month, that was that was pretty standard before the pandemic. So we need to get, and I think we're moving this way. There's enough rebalancing that we're starting to see things get kind of back to quote unquote normal. And that, and I think the labor market has behaved uh, much more in that way than inflation has been a lot harder for people to square the data. All right, Claudia, thank you so much for joining us. Claudia Som, founder and independent economist at Som Consulting, former uh, sector chief at the Federal Reserve Board, former senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House. So a uh, lot of experience. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It's Thursday. Let's get to our good friend, Barry Ritholtz. Always well-dressed, always carries himself very well. He's a host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. He's also got a day job, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, I have no idea what to talk about today, so I'm going to throw out a word, and you just kind of react. Inflation. What's going on out there? How should we think about it? It it peaked over a year ago. It's coming down, and, and the areas that are not coming down, you could blame the Fed for causing a shortage of homes for sale and higher uh, apartment rentals. Uh, other than that, everywhere we look, we see either falling prices, look no further than the used car uh, wholesale market and, and used car price market has come down to luxury goods. The the uh, index that Bloomberg tracks of luxury watches have peaked and fallen 20, 25%. So wherever we look, inflation is rolling over the three sticking points are labor, and I don't see how higher rates are magically going to make a million more workers appear in the United States, semiconductors, same, and housing. And housing is where the Fed is actually making the situation worse. Perversely, the Fed is causing higher inflation. And, and the sooner they realize that, the how are they doing that, Barry? Will all be. What do you mean by that? How are they doing that? All right. So two, two major ways. The first is owner's equivalent rent is the largest part of CPI. What is it? It's effectively what it costs to rent your house if you wanted to rent it out. And when mortgage rates go higher and there's an insufficient supply of single family homes and home prices go up, guess what happens to rental units? They go up also. Second, there would be many more homes for sale, perhaps easing the price pressure we've seen both in purchase and rentals, if people didn't feel locked in to, hey, I have a three and a half, four percent mortgage. If I go out and get a new mortgage at six and a half, seven percent, it's going to cost me a whole lot more for not a whole lot more house. We're better off staying where we are, says so many homeowners. And hey, we'll add a pool. We'll redo the kitchen. We'll we'll just do some renovation, um, which, by the way, indirectly contributes to all these rising prices for contractors. So many people have been doing that over the past couple of years. They're making that more expensive. If you want lower inflation, not only should the Fed stop raising rates, they need to think about sliding back a, a, a cut or two in order to stabilize the rental market, which they are directly disrupting. 
And your latest column on the terminal is about how more inflation expectations, silliness that you were writing about. So you're thinking that we aren't going to see higher inflation, but given what you're just talking about when it comes to especially shelter and housing, how you have different components when you're looking at inflation metrics, especially with CPI, right? Because shelter is more like around a third of the weighting, very different than, say, when you look at PCE, right? Which has a very different weighting there. That, that's exactly right. So, so first, forget expectations. When we look at goods prices, not only have they stopped going up, many of them have come down in price, and quite a few have fallen to levels that were pre-pandemic. When we look at lumber, when we look at a number of industrial metals, when we look you know, pretty much across the board, e- even energy, where are we, 68, 72 a barrel? That's what it was in 2006. So I'm okay with oil being the same price for 20 years. Yeah, it fell, it spiked, it collapsed again. But it's hard to say that we're really paying way too much for energy prices. Natural gas prices continue to drift lower despite the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So when, when we look at what's actually happening, prices are either no longer going up or going up much more slowly or actually coming down. But the Fed likes to do this thing called inflation expectations. They survey a few thousand people and they say, where do you think inflation will be in five years? And there really is one honest answer to that. How the hell do I know? (laughs) Anything else besides that is a lie. So when people say, we think inflation is going to be appreciably higher in five years, all they're really revealing is their experience the past three to six months and human psychology is that's on a leg. It took people a little while to recognize while, why inflation had started to tick up, which is why inflation expectations throughout the first half of 2021 were like, yeah, we're inflation's fine, just as it was spiking upwards. And then last summer, when it had peaked and reversed, people maintained their same much higher inflation expectations for a few years. Humans are terrible at predicting, and random people telling you what CPI will be five years from now. I I know there's been a lot of medical experiment with psilocybin and magic mushrooms. I didn't know it had actually reached the FOMC research department because that's the only explanation for for this sort of survey. All right, Barry, we're getting to the the dog days of summer. What are you driving these days? (laughs) So um, in the last year, I I picked up, it's funny to talk about this without Matt around. I know. (laughs) I picked up an old, um, uh, 9-11, a 1988 uh, Cabrio that the previous owner had just beaten the hell out of. They had, they had been racing it um, and they had modified it. So I was able to pick it up for really uh, uh, deep down inside. I'm a value investor. So anytime <laughs> I get a chance to pick up uh, a Cabrio cheap, uh, I did that. And I've slowly been bringing it back to stock. And as we're working on the car, by dumb luck, it turns out, that it's the M491 Special Edition, which is the 911 Turbo. It has everything the Turbo has minus the Turbo. So the whale tail, the fat um, fenders, the big tires, uh, beefed up suspension and brakes. It's just the Turbos were known as Widowmakers. They were notoriously uh, (laughs) dangerous. So this is everything minus that. And I I, I actually just brought it in. The last things I'm having done is the suspension return to normal. Okay. And um, that, that's kind of my fun summer driver. 
You could pick up. Everybody looks at these expensive cars. Right. If you if you do work, smartly. you can get them at a decent price. All right, Barry. Thanks so much, Barry uh, Ritholtz. There, giving us the car talk. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 11:30. All right. Here is. A story that I've been sending to all of my Harvard buddies, they're not happy for a variety of reasons. And I'm blaming our next guest, Janet Lauren. Uh, Janet Lauren, higher education finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Harvard targeted by Massachusetts bill on legacy admissions. Janet, give us a back story here. What's going on? So this bill uh, has been introduced. It's been there was a committee last week, uh, but the question is, it's gonna, is it going to have an impact? So the question is, um, does the state uh, the state would like to tax uh, schools based on their endowment per student? And we know that there's a school with a quite large endowment <laughs> in Massachusetts. Um, it's a big target, and this would give uh, schools. Uh, community colleges money uh, based on uh, formula for endowment per student if they have legacy admissions and that means if your parent went to school there do you get a preference and also early decision and why does early decision make a difference typically students who apply earlier tend to be wealthier they're not necessarily waiting for to compare financial aid packages when they get them in in March so the question is uh, Harvard, again, is always a big target. Um, there's been legislation in Massachusetts before to try to tax the endowment, also in, at Yale, to ta- and they have not been successful. They're huge um, drivers of money universities. And the Higher Ed Association in Massachusetts said, look, if there, if this goes through, our students, our, our citizens are unfairly targeted because, uh, because these policies potentially could go away. What historically has been the catalyst to prevent those types of policies from actually going through? Well, uh, you know, affirmative action in the Supreme Court uh, decision has really prompted this. Um, If the Supreme Court says you can't give a preference for race, why should you have a preference for wealthier applications is what um, is what this is is bringing out. Interesting. I noticed in your reporting that um, the Massachusetts bill um, or the second richest college in the state, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, wouldn't pay anything because it doesn't use binding early decision policies or legacy preferences. Yes. I didn't know that. Yes, that is true. Uh, MIT has long had a policy not having legacies. But, you know, MIT was the, one of the first schools to actually bring back the SAT. And MIT oh. is a, yes, they're pretty different because you kind of have to do the work. <laughs> um, so it doesn't really matter if your parent went there. They're looking for kids who can excel in math and science, and that's not going to be just anybody and they also many of the schools do not have binding early decision policies harvard yale princeton stanford mit you know that was done uh more than a decade ago um, to take out that advantage in in fact several years ago schools actually abolished early decision like princeton and few schools uh followed that and they said that they were actually losing kids because they they do like to shore up uh, where they're going to school as early as possible how have these poor community colleges been impacted in the past when these policies haven't gone through? Well, community colleges are, are really quite underfunded. You know, I was talking to one Bunker Hill Community College in Massachusetts where they have more than 10,000 students. And, uh, you know, they, their goal is to get kids to graduate, an associate's degree, um, ideally transfer to a four-year college. And, you know, the worst scenario is when you have some, some college, you've taken on some loans, and then you don't finish. Um, yep. And they're, you know, traditionally quite underfunded. 
It's interesting because we were just talking to John Tucker about this, uh, you know, going to a community college for a couple of years, then you can transfer all your credits to say in the state of New Jersey to Rutgers, which is the State University of New Jersey, Sunjay. Um, and then you can graduate with a Rutgers degree with only really two years of a Rutgers tuition. Yes. Well, and, and really, um, the biggest issue when you're talking about student loans is when you have some college and you and you don't have the degree, but you're carrying this loan burden for a long time. And certainly people think about community college as an alternative to having a couple of years of less expensive school. And as you said, transferring, you're still having the Rutgers degree and plus, you know, real experience. As far as putting into perspective, just how challenging is it and how many students end up not actually being able to accept and go to a university like Harvard just because of the increasing costs? Like, say, if you don't have that kind of connection there where you're part of a family and an alumni group like that. Well, Harvard for a long time has been trying to increase its financial aid and targeted to lower income students. So our story last week talked about the incoming class. 25% um, have incomes of 85000 or less. And that's something that they've been particularly uh, trying to target in the last several years. How important are the, the legacy programs to the universities? I mean, it's a, it's a broad discussion point, but it, it seems like they're quite important for just, I don't know, support and all that type of thing. Well, the University of Pennsylvania used to say, look, if your kid wants to go here, you went here, you have to apply early. And that, that's the only place where you're going to have an advantage in the early decision process. But colleges like to you know, preserve their communities. They like to encourage alumni to donate. And you know, you may, we had a comment in one of the stories earlier this week that um, legacy programs do encourage people to donate. You know, you're giving to your college for 30 years with the hopes that your kid might get in. That's, you know, that is some some revenue that schools don't want to curtail. And, and certainly we're also talking about wealthy donors too. Right. And what's the likelihood that when we're talking about these admission policies that they would actually likely go through this time around? Um, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you talk to the higher ed lobby, you talk to observers and they say, well, it's not that they have zero chance, maybe they're, you know, but before they had zero chance, maybe it sounds a little bit more interesting mm -hmm. with the Supreme Court. But you have to understand that Colleges in Massachusetts, there's a lot of rich colleges in Massachusetts, yeah. and you cannot undermine uh, the power of lobbyists. Colleges for a long time resisted the uh, federal tax on endowments. It's something that a lot of um, congressmen were interested in because, you know, Harvard has $50 billion. Yale has $41 billion. Yeah. You know, these are, these are you know, massive asset allocations. And uh, they're a rich target, but ultimately, you know, except for the federal endowment tax that went through in the Trump t uh, tax cuts of 2017, they've never been successful. Talk to us about another topic that I know you're familiar with, which is we're seeing here the rich get richer, whether it's endowment or students or and, and maybe, the, you know, the poor get poor in terms of some of these underfunded schools, underendowed schools literally going out of business. How's the playing field these days? What's happening out there? What do higher education folks think is going to be the, the trend? Well, there are a couple of trends. Uh, the first one is you had uh, pandemic money that certainly helped, gave a huge lifeline to colleges for several years, um, and that's going away. You have uh, what we've been writing about for a decade, 
demographic shifts. There are just fewer 18-year-olds out there. There's fewer kids to go to college. And uh, kids tend to go 200 miles away from their homes. And there's a lot of colleges in areas that are constrained, such as the Midwest and the Northeast. So you have all these issues converging at the same time with the prices expensive. Are, are people making different decisions uh, not to go to college? So, you know, when the price tag could be $70,000, $80,000, now keep in mind that's not actually what most families pay because most of the smaller um, liberal arts colleges, they do, um, they do offer aid. So the sticker price is really not what they're paying. But it's a good question. We're starting to see uh, there was a college in New Jersey um, uh, that has now since merged with uh, Montclair State. Bloom mm -hmm. It was Bloomfield College. Right. So I think you're starting to see more of that. And, you know, as you see schools um, uh, looking for debt, uh, their, their ratings are, are constrained. Yeah. Right. Especially when you think of just in the context of COVID as well, which what you were mentioning, the haves and the have nots right. and yep. how that can exacerbate that. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Janet Lauren, higher education finance reporter at Bloomberg News, talking to us about, obviously, this was a big topic you were looking forward yep. to speaking to, Paul, as far as how Harvard is targeting this Massachusetts bill on legacy admissions and what that could mean, obviously, for endowments, but then also um, on the poor side of things when we are talking about community colleges. Yeah, and I just, I kind of feel like the, the well-resourced families will find a way around whatever blockades or you know kind of challenges are put up by Which colleges in clearly terms of some of these the, things right they have historically done and with yeah. the lobbying efforts yeah uh, but you know we thought about the uh, uh, Supreme Court case coming down people somebody said wrote in um, being a really good essay writer is now going to become even more important because right. you want to say you know as an uh, you know as right. an underprivileged blah 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 I overcame these and and that's kind of the way to but then you also have it. to kind of think about the haves and the have-nots. Yep, we absolutely. About. Uh, it's been a big, a big, big issue. And uh, but again, the community college schools have been such a great route for so many people over so many years. You'd like to see that uh, continue. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at Matt Miller 1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.